I want to tell you about Persistent Vision Records. They are a brand new label that has hit the ground running. They've just reissued two records from Screamo Legends Page 99, the singles collection, as well as Document Number 8, which is an all-time personal favorite of mine. But they're not just doing reissues. They've also just released a split between Habak and Lagrimas, who are two bands that I've absolutely got my eye on that are so good. You can order these great releases directly through PersistentVisionRecords.com or through DeathWishInc.com. Give them a follow on Instagram at Persistent Vision Records so you don't miss out on what's coming next. Welcome to the first ever podcast. My name is Jeremy Bohm. I am your host. And if this is your first time here, this is a show where I interview artists of all kinds about the first experiences in their art form that led them to where they are today. My guest this week for episode 154 is none other than Justice Tripp of Angel Dust, of Trapped Under Ice, of Cold Omega. He's a legend. This was a long time coming. I love this man so much. I got to tour with him in Europe some years back um, when he moved to Los Angeles. We got to hang out quite a bit. I love him dearly. And this was a whole lot of fun. Um, Angel Dust has a brand new record coming out September 8th on Pop Wig. It's called Brand New Soul. You can pre-order that now. The singles they've dropped so far are absolutely fantastic. So uh, if you haven't checked them out, please go do that immediately. Uh, we spoke just as he got back from Sound and Fury, which happened just the weekend before uh, Trapped Under Ice was a headliner. So it was fun to kind of talk about that, talk about his experience with uh, performing in the state that he was in. Um, <laughs> but I want to let you know that if you are new here, that there is a bonus episode available right now where Justice answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. You can hear that by going over to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon. You can subscribe for as little as $3 a month and get access to that episode. Plus all of the other bonus episodes, you get access to a discord channel, all sorts of stuff. If you subscribe for just a little bit more, you can submit questions to upcoming guests. Uh, and then for the top level, you can get a annual gift, which is actually going out hopefully this, this week or next week. I'm waiting for it to arrive on my doorstep before I start shipping. Um, but yeah, well, without further ado, here's my conversation with the, I don't even know how to begin to describe this man. I always have a little lead in. What can I say? The handsome, the charming, the talented, the hilarious, the gold toothed Justice Trip. What's up, Justice? It's so nice to see you. How are you? Are you feeling rested? Because I know you just got back from Sound and Fury. Yeah, I feel awesome. Um, we didn't really sleep the night of the show maybe like an hour and a half and then got on a plane and flew home and just was up traveling for like 15 hours, but Ugh. slept like the last day. So pretty. Yeah. Calm. Were you, it's so funny. Like 
I think about your watching your set. Unfortunately, I couldn't make it, but I, I think about just like watching the footage of your set and knowing you were headlining, all those sorts of things. Did did you have any sort of time to like mentally prepare to play that set or did it feel like you were just being social up until the second you had to all of a sudden walk out on stage? Definitely that, the later. But uh, it's kind of like my thing is like, I don't allow myself to think about it beforehand. And I think that like, you know, I think people overthink it. Like, what cool thing am I going to say? And what am I, the cool trick I'm going to do on stage? I just go out there like a scared animal, you know, and like, let let it freak me out. And what you get is real, you know? It's like, right. in context of other performers, I might not be the best performer, but I think I'm a great entertainer though, you know? <laughs> I think you're both, but I, I totally get what you are saying completely. Yeah. Like it reminds me of, you know, like when you're playing a hometown show, it's like, it's, it's such an important event because you're playing your hometown and all that, but you hardly have a time to do maybe what you would do if you were playing just a show in like Denver where like Absolutely. you make sure you drink your water and you'd like maybe stretch a little bit and then you walk out, you play your set. But like when it's an event like Sound and Fury or a hometown show, it's so tough because you're surrounded by so many people that are, you know, they want your attention, but you also want to give them your attention too. Yeah, I think I was prioritizing water for sure. And then uh, psychedelic mushrooms was the second thing, like trying to time it out. Me and a friend, his name's Luis. Oh, yeah, that's my guy. Yeah, just want to try to time out the mushrooms so that they, they kick in when you, once you hit the stage. Yeah. So talk now, to me as a straight edge person, talk to me about what it's like to be on mushrooms, uh, playing a show like you played. Dude, it's, uh, I, mushrooms for me are like mainly like a, a therapeutic tool, you know, like an at home, low dose self realization tool, you know, in context of being on stage. Um, it's, it's fucking, it just like changes the experience. I mean, like the greatest thing in the world to me is playing music live, you know, like making records and playing music live. I hate everything else on tour before the being on stage live, you know, and after. That's not true. Obviously, I really enjoy being with my friends and stuff, but you get to leave your body a little bit, I guess. Or I actually, I would say it's the opposite with taking mushrooms. You are truly in your body, you know, and super aware of everything going on. So I think it's like, it's not like smoking pot or drinking beer where it's like, you, you might not perform as well. It's like, I have energy and I'm super aware. I'm super plugged in and super capable um, and also super capable of feeling emotions and stuff. So like, you know, a lot of Trapped Under Ice for me is like more angry, aggressive music and lyrically. And it's like, I'm, I'm feeling everything while it's happening. I'm seeing everybody else feel it. And it's like, means that much more. Could that work? Not to sound like a parent, but could that work in like a negative way? I mean, uh, Angel Dust played. I'm on mushrooms a lot. So if you see me play in the last couple of years, I was probably on mushrooms. But like uh, Angel Dust played in South Carolina and I cried. I was like trying to explain to people why I was crying. But it was that, you know, maybe that's a negative. Maybe that's cool. You know, maybe somebody liked that. Like it wasn't even, right. even an emotional thing. It was like, I was just on one. And just, All of a sudden just tears were just coming out of your eyes and you couldn't really <laughs> control it. Yeah. But uh, like, I guess it could, it could, anything can be abused, you know, and like could be a negative thing. Um, but it ha I haven't had like a negative experience really in context of doing that on like in my life or on stage, you know? Yeah. I more so mean like when you say 
you know, it's more uh, trapped under ice is more angry. It's more aggressive. People are swinging on each other, all sorts of stuff like that. Like if you are so in tune with what is going on in your body, like I just, yeah, I guess my, my mindset went to like, could that fuel a negative feeling within your body while you're, yeah, you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what the angel dust thing was when I cried. It was like singing a song that had a little thing in it. Yeah. And I just got off on it and started going and in my feelings, you know? So, but uh, I think that, interesting thing about mushrooms and psilocybin it's like i think it's really just like making you more self-aware at all times and with that comes moments of seeing yourself or seeing a feeling that you felt in the past more clearly now that that is a dangerous thing i think when people describe like a bad trip that's what they're seeing it's like you can take little bits of mushrooms and see little bits of yourself and grow in that how can i be better how can i improve this is what i love about myself feeling self-love at all um but in context of singing something hurtful you go back to that place maybe you overthink it and uh just overfeel it and i think it's you know again people have say they have bad trips i think what happens is they take too much that too much that they can they can't deal with it mm-hmm. and they have to see themselves entirely um in a very clear way and realizing that you're a piece of shit is heavy you know yeah 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 Damn. Um, so it's so funny. Like after I saw there was like an after show over after party thing that night. And uh all of a sudden, like as I was because I did like a DJ set thing, and like as I was wrapping up, I was I was like getting ready to leave. That's when all of a sudden all the friends started showing up and I saw Franz, I saw Atiba. I saw, and I a part of me was just like, Oh man, am I gonna get to see Justice? But then I thought, oh wait, he's heading home. He's probably not coming to the after thing. Oh man, I wish. I, I kind of fucked up because um I like have been gone so much and I really wanted to spend time with my girl, my partner, my girlfriend. Yeah. Um, and I came straight home like, oh, babe. And like my, my schedule is so hectic. I don't remember my schedule, let alone hers. Yeah. Like, yeah, babe, I'm home. We have all this free time. And she just left for Florida, going to like a country concert with her sisters. You know, I was like, oh, shit. I just I'm dumb. I should just chill in L.A. for a couple of days. <laughs> yeah. Damn. It would have been nice to see you. Um, So. Yo, when uh, whenever I talk to musicians, the first thing that I usually ask them is when you were growing up, what what was the first thing you remember connecting with musically that felt like it was yours? Maybe not something that was being played in the house by any sort of parent or sibling or something like that, but something that you found that kind of gave you a sense of your own identity as like a young person. And also just for the record, I know you're 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 Baltimore, but like I forget, are you? born and raised in actual Baltimore city or were you like in a, a outskirts a little bit? Mostly Baltimore County. Okay. Yeah. A, a town called Essex. Okay. Um, Sometimes that plays a role with that question. So that's why I wanted to make sure I got that. Oh yeah. That can make sense. Well, I think mine, mine, my answer is pretty, probably pretty universal for our age group, but guns and roses, like just some like wild ass rockers with big crazy hair. They they didn't look like anybody. Actually, yeah. they kind of looked like my stepdad, who's like the person I most admired and wanted to be growing up. You know. Okay. Maybe part of it is I I saw how much he loved it and it like got me all juiced. And there's like super active at that time. It was like yeah. I feel like MTV had like five or six Guns and Roses videos going at all times. You know. Thinking about your age. I'm thinking, would that have been like more so like the November rain? That was part of it for sure. Terminator uh, 2, like the yeah, You Will Be Mine. Dude, I was obsessed with Terminator 2, the movie. Yeah. I wanted to be John Connor and shit, and I had a flop. 
and like just thought he was the coolest. Had to get a military jacket to look yeah. like him. Um, so them doing the soundtrack and the video, which was like clips of Terminator action and then clips of Guns N' Roses rocking hard as fuck. Yeah. And then like their, you know, their videos at the time were just like girls in the crowd, like very exposed, all that shit. I was like, I'm five, sign me up. This is this is my life forever. This is who I am. Right. <laughs> no, for sure. For sure. Yeah. And that song, I feel like you you will be mine or whatever is like one of their hardest songs, too. For Good. sure. That song, dude. It's insane. Yeah. 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 Did you ever get to see them? Hell no. Yeah. I've, I've never seen like all the shit I looked up to. I was like, um, really, I was like touring for so long that every cool thing that comes through, everything I love so much, somebody's like, hey, have you, this show happened in Baltimore. Where were you? It's like, well, I was in fucking Portugal that day. You know, it's like I was always so far from so much of my life has been majorly touring, like touring the majority of the year. Yeah. 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 Um, I guess I was also, I mean, there's always just the random chances when you end up on a festival. I feel like a Hellfest or something like that is like where one of those bands would play. So I was curious if you ever had a chance to like, if they, if they ever ended up on the same thing that you oh, were doing. No. Never overlapped. I wish that'd be legendary. Yeah. Uh, what was the first album? Like, were you someone who was buying CDs? Were you, were you burning stuff? Like what, uh, do you remember buying a, a, any CDs or cassettes? Cassettes was like the thing first, like off, off the rip. I just wanted cassettes from, from family members, like for like my birthday or something, you know, do any early ones stand out to you that you, uh, that you got, uh, appetite for destruction was number one. Okay, shit, yeah. And then uh, a Shaq single, What's Up, Doc? Can We Rock? <laughs> Do you know I'm that song? I'm assuming Space Jam. No, this is well before, before mm. that. Yeah. No way. How old are you? I'm 40. Damn, I'm 37. Yeah. But I, I also like really got into music really young because it was like people in my family were rockers, you know? So Right. But yeah, the Shaq, Shaq had a little track that I really liked a lot when I was a kid it's i mean just because of that name it sounds that sounds like it would have been like space jam related was he in space jam i know it's michael jordan i don't know if he was actually in space jam i haven't seen it in so long yeah same i i, I don't even know that i've uh even seen the thing in full i think i might have just seen uh, so many clips in my in my life that i feel like i've seen it you know i'm such a poser i just dropped a song called space jam and i literally don't even know if Shaq is in it you know it's funny when you guys drop that uh i don't think you know this uh so the very first song in the first Touche record, uh, we, you know how like when you're writing songs, um, there's always like the fake name for the song before you actually name it. You know, it's like you're like, oh, Fugazi track or like whatever the hell. You just like have some dumb name for whatever it is before you actually have lyrics or whatever. So the very first song on the first Touche record, we always just stupidly called it Space Jam. And that's the only one that has stuck. Like if you look at our set lists to this day, we write Space Jam. We don't write the name of the actual song, oh, which I is know. so funny. So when you guys drop that, it hit the group chat. We're just like, yo, Angel Dust knows what's up. <laughs> maybe maybe it was inspired. Maybe when we were on tour together or something, I, I saw this. How to look at it, something. You know? <laughs> it's very, hey, who knows? Who knows how that stuff gets in there? What, why did you name it that? Is there, is there, was there any sort of reason? It's honestly, it's an old song where we like, well, I wrote the song years ago and, uh, just like playing with this team with with angel dust in its state where it is now um these dudes just play a certain way and they can play everything so we just like we're like riffing on songs that i had wrote 
and building off of them and creating new songs together. And that was one that just like felt good in the context of it. But like, it's funny at the time, it's just about being a weirdo. You know what I mean? It's like, I don't, I don't want to fit. I don't want to fit. I just want to do like my own thing. It's about hardcore and rock and roll music. It's like, yeah. Context of that. It's like, I don't need to fit. I'm just going to do my, my space shit, you know? And it's like more relevant now to my life than ever. It's like, I'm just like, that's what I want to keep doing as I get older too. I want to like just grow into like whatever it is that I am. Just be more and more of it. And like my space jam, you know? I love that. I love, well, you have forever been one of the most unique people I've ever had in my life. So I, I support this in every single way possible. You got some unique people in your life, bro. I'll be seeing some real unique characters popping up around you, you know? <laughs> so. well, well, I mean, I'll, you know, it'll probably come up later, but. Uh, one of my favorite memories in the entire world is when you came in the studio to record with us and just having oh you this. you and Ross Robinson together, just vibing yeah. out and having conversations. I was like, these are two of the most unique people I, kn- I know personally, and I love just seeing them together have a conversation. Yeah, it was awesome for me. I appreciate the opportunity to 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 sing with you guys and just to be in. Obviously, it's always a pleasure to be in your presence, but he's a different, whole different beast. And I've never met him. And, you know, like yeah. I remember being a kid and like seeing documentary of recording corn records and stuff that he'd worked yeah. on, which was like super influential for me as a young person. And, you know, it's interesting. I think all that shit, like your whole life, all your influence, it all adds up to a moment, you know? And it's like, right now it's like, I wouldn't be who I am if it wasn't for him, you know? I feel um, the exact same way. And I and I even wonder if I'm if I'm if we're thinking about the same corn documentary that who then now was like a VHS. Yeah. 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 yeah there's a part that he's in it that has always stuck out to me so much. And then like knowing his voice from that and then meeting him the first time and just being like, oh fuck, that's really him. Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> it would been real weird if I like tried to tell him about that shit. You know, if I was like, bro, because it's like, you know, I'm like uh the thing is I love music so much and I love all music, but I'm not one of those people who like like knows the discography and who played on what and blah it's like i don't care i just care about like lots of sounds and hearing them and what's going to happen when that shit happens live is going to be me in a mosh pit you know it's like again that fool has had a lot of influence in my life and like like those records it's like would i even like heavy music if it wasn't for corn i don't know i probably right it's a different person you know no, I feel that completely. We ended up having like a really deep conversation one time. It might even been on the episode that I had him on or like way early on, but like the realization that the that as much as corn changed everything for me, like the the vulnerability in corn is what opened me up to vulnerability in music and how that has been the arc in my life you know what i'm saying and like how vulnerable you can be and all that sort of stuff and i think that that did start in 1994 with that corn record dude that's an incredible acknowledgement because i I never thought about that but that's truly so much of what i'm attracted to in music and that is where it came from you know it's like we look at guns and roses for example it's like less vulnerable it's very yeah yeah very masculine very show-offy yeah guns and roses is gonna kick your fucking ass corn they might kick your ass or they might get their ass kicked and they're going to cry in the shower about it. And that's what I was growing up. You know, it's like, I wasn't really a hard ass. I was like, get picked on and go cry about it. Right. <laughs> Dude, I feel it. I feel it a hundred percent. Yeah. And that's, I think uh, it's definitive of trapped under ice too. It's like, that's like playing hard ass music 
from a very vulnerable perspective, which other hardcore bands have done. It's not like, you know. Yeah. <laughs> what uh what was the first concert you went to? Um, I was like going to shows really young, like local punk rock shit, you know. Um, I couldn't even tell you which was the first time, but we would uh, we were all with this band called Misdirected when I was a kid. Um, it's like local kind of a cool spectrum of shit where it was like kind of like ska punk and poppy music and kind of hardcore influenced and all over the place. And uh, were they older and they were just like in your community or were they people you grew up with? Yeah, they were, they were a little bit older. It's cool. I mean, some of those dudes still kick it pretty heavy and run into them at the auto bar a lot at the, at the, at the hardcore punk gigs. But that kind of like led to me going to like just, just loving concerts of all sorts just receiving information right um from any avenue possible so i think like pretty young i saw everclear that was a big one and okay jimmy's chicken shack was playing a lot at the time do you know them dude the song high yeah dude that's an incredible song that is a very turnstile influence or influencing track you know what i'm saying yeah some jimmy's chicken shack tracks but specifically that track it feels very much of the spirit of turnstile in, in that music no no doubt no doubt 1000 percent. like it's just it's it's the simplicity in the riffs that can make you jump yeah make you bounce yeah and the dude just has like was it jimmy haha he just got like a cool ass voice like that's a person when he's singing you know he talks cool as shit you know right they came out in that era when new metal was really kicking off and i felt like the label that they were a part of didn't necessarily know what to do with them so they were like well i think he was like a white guy with dreadlocks right i'm pretty sure the singer so they were like yeah we'll just like try to make you fit into that world and it really didn't you know they were they were kind of more in like the 311 world i felt is that fair to say you think yeah i feel like it's like more alternative leaning and more like right melodic and rock song a lot of big rock things happening yeah Uh, just tinged with maybe a little new metal production yeah. Are they from like that area? Are they from like the Baltimore area? Yeah. I couldn't tell you exactly where, but okay, uh, close enough that I feel like I was watching them every weekend when I was a kid. I was like psyched and I like wanted to like go talk to them and shake their hand. And I had like a million things with Jimmy Haha's autograph on it when I was a kid. Oh, so, wow. That's amazing. Did you see Everclear and them together or were those separate shows? Honestly, probably. I've seen Everclear like 15 times. Oh, shit. Okay. So when I was a kid, you got to think we had, do you know about the HF Festival? I don't tell me WHFS was like the rock station when I was a kid, like the alternative rock station also so influential in who I am as a person. And they had a big festival every year called the HF festival. And it was always turned. And I feel like every year I went like 15 times, dude, like so much of my childhood was that, but in my brain, which is not true at all, but Jimmy's chicken shack and Everclear played every year. I mean, there's a chance that they played multiple times. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, did you see anyone else you remember at those festivals that like blew your mind? Dude, I'm like at a point now where it's like, I've just seen so much, so many festivals, so many. And it's like, then you have, it's like, you go see the festival and you walk by and watch 10 seconds of a performance. Totally. I saw that, but I'm not going to remember that in three years, you know? Right. It, it all blurs together, you know? Fair. I mean, I remember being really excited to see Limp Bizkit at the HF Festival, you know. When did you start playing an instrument and what was your first instrument? Was it guitar? Guitar, yeah. Um, I think it was 
my sixth Christmas on earth. I was like obsessed with just guitar things. And um, I always reference a pretty like large thing in my life, like a moment in my life that like really inspired me. And it's kind of interesting that it, it says so much about how I've lived my life, but we were on the boardwalk in ocean city, Maryland, my my mother and my stepfather. And, um, we like went to go eat at like an outdoor cafe and there was a person um, who didn't look very well kept. who's like playing guitar on the side of like on the boardwalk, like on the water, basically like on a pier. I think it was like a, the restaurant was like on a pier. I, I could look it up and tell you what it's called. It's probably still there. Um, but he was like taking requests for like a dollar, you know? And my stepdad was like, yo, the like, I think he was joking because it's like, irrational and he's like the boy wants to hear it's the end of the world as we know it you know by rem and i was like yeah i want to hear that song and he just like nailed it all crazy he like played that song which the verses yeah he like just played the whole song and like killed he was awesome oh my god just very unsuspecting like i can remember what yeah. he looked like he was like in pretty in a pretty rough state yeah like, i've been pursuing music since that moment and I can't play that song yet. You know, it's like, I mean, maybe if I spend enough time focusing, it's a pretty, pretty elaborate track, a lot going on. Right. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, well, that's a, I mean, that's a beautiful memory that they, that it hit you in that sort of a way. Yeah. And I had to be, I was six. So again, yeah. that Christmas when we got, when I got a guitar. Was um, it like a hand-me-down or was it like a bought from the store kind of situation? Um, They got me like, a generic type of acoustic guitar perfect for the age I was because I didn't get it yeah but sure. it was a good tool I always think about that like um got my niece a guitar a couple years ago and like I know friends who get guitars for their kids and I remember my mother my stepdad kind of being like oh you don't even play that guitar it's it, it's like doesn't have value and they didn't see it as a valuable thing but the, it was so valuable like I was always doing things with it you know mm -hmm. I would like sleep with my guitar and like play drums on my guitar and like it was a tool to open my imagination it didn't matter the rules of the guitar and i didn't find those out until much later but like the guitar my like as my friend is like i don't know, you think about kids that get like a stuffed animal and they carry it around with them for years and years I, like that was my guitar i'd take it outside to play you know it was right. beat shit. the fucking tuning pegs got knocked off of it real fast you know and then but i kept playing with it and then uh i think my uncle and my mom a couple years later like pitched in to get me like fender gear so i could like play guitar right did you end up did you ever end up taking lessons or anything or what did you were you self-taught never lessons like there was a a friend in the neighborhood who had his family had a drug problem and mom my mother looked out for him a lot um he like showed me some some little chords and stuff like that a couple songs that i wanted to learn and the power chord was the only thing for so long you know what i mean it's like and then you find out about drop D and I can play the power chord. Just I lay in my power chords in there. Yeah. yeah. Get like 20 power chords in a riff. Looking for an extraordinary coffee? Look no further than Heartwork Coffee. With eight years of excellence and proudly roasting in the vibrant city of San Diego, California, visit heartworkcoffeebar.com to explore a wide range of single origin and blended coffees to suit your taste preference. On a personal note, co-founder Rob Moran has played in so many bands that have inspired me personally, 
like Unbroken and Some Girls, for example. And it's been amazing watching Heartwork thrive all these years. The coffee is amazing, and I'm thrilled to support this company. Once again, visit heartworkcoffeebar.com to place an order. That is H-E-A-R-T work coffeebar.com. What, uh, when did you start your first band and what was your first band? Um, our first band was called Mr. Bruce. I was, I want to say 11. Okay. How old are you in sixth grade? Fifth grade, maybe. That seems about right. Yeah. I think like, I think sixth grade is like 12 to 13, maybe. So that seems right. Yeah. Like, like fifth grade, maybe. Yeah. I want to say it was the summer going into sixth grade and me and a couple of friends of mine that were a little bit older, they had a band that I kind of jammed with them one time before that. It's punk rock. We're like, we're going to be aggressive and scream. There's like three of us. Um, the dudes are my best friends forever. Like very influential people in my life. Brian Wagner. Uh, he's, I just saw him not too long ago, which was really cool to like see these people. Yeah. Um, see value in something we learned together like that, you know? Um, Matt Redman was the drummer. He was everybody's best friend. And he actually, he had cancer and he died when we were 15, he was 15 or he was 16. I'm sorry. But what an inspiring person, man. I think so many people like of my age group, our generation, where we're from took a lot of inspiration to be great. Cause he was like a phenomenal drummer as a little kid. That was the vibe. Wow, man, that's that's heavy. And to have that kind of loss like that early on to somebody that you were in a band with, so, and, you know, you describe them as like everybody's best friend. That's that had to have really sort of changed your scope kind of in general. I still think it was real heavy, you know, like, yeah, it's a really uh, life defining moment. You know, it's like to just grow close with somebody and like you don't even understand what you're experiencing at that age. You know, you're like. Oh, this is cool. We're, we got a little band and our, our one friend is really good and he's pushing everybody to be better. And like, it's like, I still think like that, like the, like the things he gave me musically, like when, but I'm like pushing my friends to, to like be the best, you know? Yeah. It's crazy. I like, just th- I do think back and be like, damn, like imagine if like he didn't leave us so early like i would definitely be playing music with that dude or he'd be doing some whole other shit and i would just be trying to emulate him still you know? <laughs> so were you guys doing cover songs were you guys doing originals yeah we didn't believe in that cover songs <laughs> <laughs> so did that so you guys were writing your own songs did you guys play any shows like what was your first concert you ever played kind of a lot for like little kids you know yeah i always struggle to remember which, which was my actual first performance but again it's like that's kind of it's kind of the cool thing about my life. I've just been doing it so long for so since I was a kid and some of it bleeds together, but it's one of two shows that pops in my head. It was either. So Mr. Bruce, we were like involved with like youth group. Um, we were kind of bad kids and like a, a dude in our neighborhood was like, Hey, do you guys want to come hang out at the church? There's chicks. We we're like, let's go. There's chicks. We want to go beat girls because otherwise <laughs> girls are not talking to us. That was, that was like, the thing we like would practice at there they would let us practice at the church and stuff and it's funny they'd always talk about us being a christian band being like oh yeah you guys can start a christian band about god like here's instruments and then we would like would just do our hardcore band and like the singer was wild you like jump off shit and and say cuss words and 
scream and you know like right i want to do now you know yeah uh so we played a like a coffee spot like it was like one of those like open house coffee things and we drove like two hours to i want to say it was salisbury maryland which is so funny because we're like little kids and we could have played a show anywhere in baltimore but right yeah that's interesting coffee house it was like a christian thing the church people were like you should do this and we pulled up we did our thing we're like jumping off of stuff and going being like bad little kids and they kicked us out immediately <laughs> so you had you mentioned you had a singer so you were just playing guitar in this band no yeah i was just playing guitar and i was like sometimes i get a mic and i could scream in the background a little bit how many bands did you do before you decided to sing in a band oh dude i never decided to, i didn't want to sing in a band it was like played in a lot of bands as a kid I mean, it's so hard to to even put a number on it because I've played in so many bands. But, you know, when you're a kid, it's like you get a band that plays a show or two and or it doesn't even do that. You just yeah, you just like lot. practice and then the band breaks up. You, you spend more time naming your band and coming up with a logo than actually playing music. Yeah. So I had, I had so many of those, like so many creative endeavors where I was like being friends, got a name and would play songs like riff and try to create an identity. Can um, you can you rattle off any of the band names that you were a part of that well, yeah, Mr. Bruce ahead. turned into Three Inch Lynch, turned into Farewell Hope, turned into Ruiner. That like was the evolution of that. Wow. Obviously mm-hmm. Ruiner. There ended up being another Ruiner, but like that's so funny. No, that's, that's the Ruiner. They're from Baltimore. Wait, you were in that band? I wasn't in Ruiner. I was in Mr. Bruce, which turned yeah. into and then oh. by the time it was Ruiner, it was like completely different people. Oh, how funny. Yeah, but all of those people were in, you know, Rob was in Mr. Bruce at one point. Oh, my God. That turned into a band called Three Inch Lynch that I was in. And then it turned into Farewell Hope. And I think at that point it was like getting more evil. And I was like, I, I don't know if I'm that evil. I can't play that evil. Y'all play evil. They started fucking with speed picking. Yeah. And, it, you know, then again, Ruiner was like some of the same people. And Oh, how funny. Uh, I did a band called The Fall Line. Kind of like a, a metalish band in my head I always perceived it as like being like bosh at botch esque yeah like botch a lot and I was like oh it could it is kind of could be like that but it was just all over the place right oh that's interesting cool thing people like challenging challenging me musically and then we did Nick Fury and I think that was the first band that felt like mine you know like where I was like had more of an opinion on stuff and my opinion was it was my peers it was the first time I wasn't playing with people way older than me and people valued my opinion and yeah. what was the first band that you maybe went to a recording studio with to record um it's kind of a blurry one too it's hard to say i, I would imagine it was with the, uh, the fall line okay i know mr bruce recorded three inch lens recorded i just don't remember those sessions so it could have been us setting up in a room and i don't remember like the first studio i remember going into and like really recording was uh was the fall line band Fallline band, yeah, that makes sense. Do you remember at least like when going into a studio situation, like what you remember feeling about it? Like, were you nervous? Were you excited? Was it something that you found yourself attached to? Yeah, I was so nervous. Like, I I loved it. I was in, really intimidated by it, and it took me a long time to get comfortable with the studio. I remember, remember being like terrified and just stressed out and unable to be my my most self. 
every time I stepped in a studio, which has been, you know, at least once a year, every year of my life since I've been 15. And only in the last so many years, like getting really comfortable and like uh, finding a relationship with the studio. Yeah, because I was, I was going to say, like, when I think about you as a musician, I think about you as someone who, like, thrives in that environment. Like, I've hung out with you at a recording studio. I've, you've, you talk about it so much. You record so much. You know, you, you seem like someone who is just constantly wanting to, like, come up with ideas and record them. So that's why I was curious if, like, you got that bug early on. No, I, I was like... I was never a strong musician. And I always thought that's what the, the studio was about, was just being the strong, strongest musician possible. I've always been more of an idea person and a more of a, which there's a role for that. It's like more of a productive role, a production role, you know? Um, but like, you know, it was just like my own inner thing. It's like, uh, we talk about that. What do they call that? When you feel like you're faking your, um, your role in life? You, imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome, yeah. Yeah. It's like, that's something I feel like I've always dealt with where it's like, I've always known who I was and I've put myself in situations to be who I am, but there's like moments where somebody else makes you feel doubt and not because they did anything intentional. It could be the way somebody looks at you while you're playing a riff or something, you know, but I always just was like, man, there was a time when you could put doubt in me, you know, you could like, you could not believe in me and I wouldn't believe in me. And I think everybody experiences that on some level. Uh, and I think especially in the studio is a place where I felt that on stage, not as much. Like I, I know I can perform and get the job done and get people excited, but something about the studio made it hard. And I think in the last couple of years, I've been able to be like, you know what it is? I've just like rid myself of, of um, allowing somebody to like question myself or put doubt in me. Like I know that people don't, always understand me i know that people doubt me and i always win so it's like at some point you got to be like i'm just right when i like have these ideas when i like do something wrong in the studio that mm -hmm. i know like those things pay off like every time you know yeah there'd be like a friend in the process doubting you which is completely acceptable i'm not saying it's a bad thing like that's the process of recording music we're supposed to do that give each other feedback and I've doubted things that happen to work out really well. You know, mm -hmm. we just don't always see the vision, but you have to learn to trust your vision and trust yourself. And it's like, like, I know it now. Like I, I'm like, Oh, I got it. Right. And you know, I'd be curious to hear your take on this, but it's so funny. Like, so we just started writing our next record finally. And like, you know, we always say like, you'll work on something so long all day. And then by the time you like decide to voice memo it or some shit like that, you're so sick of it. You don't like it. But how much just sleeping, waking up and then playing it back just makes such a difference where all of a sudden you're like, oh, wait, no, this is actually sick. So, you know, in that environment where all of a sudden you're doubting something, you know, you're like, I don't know if this is it. I don't know if this is it. It's just remarkable how much just sleeping on it and then listening to something back the next day makes a world of difference. Do you find that too? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There's uh, lots of little tricks. I mean, I have songs that I, I I start working on and you get that doubt, whether it's just because you've played it over and over again or somebody expressed doubt or something. That's like I was saying with Space yeah. song that like I wrote years ago. 
but like never felt like it was there. I had doubts in it and then playing it with my team eliminated the doubt. So, all right, got to do this and let's not put it under a microscope. Let's not go crazy over analyzing it. You lose a song like that too, you know? Right. Straight up. A part of pick a a song to death. And then all of a sudden you're like, there's just scraps left. And you're like, Oh, we just, we just, we should go back to the beginning and start over again. Yeah. And I mean, there's bands in the world who do that very well, you know, like that's the role of some bands is to like really overanalyze a song and give it so much in every little crevice. There's a drum fill or a sound that wasn't present before. That's going to really make that song. But I just am not really as good at operating like that, I guess. Uh, what was the first band? So obviously you've been in a, a, you've done a ton of bands and stuff like that. So my next question would have been like first release. Um, I'm assuming all these bands had like demos and like probably burn CDs, CDRs, things like that. But what, which band was the first band to like have like a, like an actual pressed CD, maybe put out through a label or a seven inch or something like that. It wasn't trapped under ice probably. Right. Or was it? No, the band we did before that was called Nick Fury, Nick X Fury. Yeah. And we were like a pretty active band. We like toured a little bit. And I remember that name. And I don't think I ever put it together that you were a part of that. Oh, yeah. It's like Sam Trapkin played guitar. Um, our friend Kenny sang. Ben Asparza, who played drums in Trapped Under Ice, played uh, played drums. Uh, and then Ian Marshall, who plays in Truth Cult now. Oh, shit. I just hung out with that guy. <laughs> yeah, he's a he's a legend. So that would have been on Psych Out Records. Is that right? Yeah, that's so funny. I was literally trying to think of the name of the record label off the rip. Oh, which... man. So that's like 2005. Okay. Okay. How did yeah. that feel for you to get that to get that uh, that piece of vinyl in your in your hand the first time? Was that like something you were psyched about? Yeah, that's really. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Con- like life affirming, I guess, you know, right. It should be like, oh, man, this is something I can do. And it's like at that time you make some records and if you sell a hundred of them, you're the baddest motherfucker. But like you were like, I can do sustainably do this. And right. Put my job and <laughs> me and my friends are gonna sell one thousand vinyl and live that way. What uh what was the story with Psych Out Records? I just like I looked it up. It looked like they only put out a handful of things. It, like two things from a band called Full Nelson, something from a band called Lighten Out uh, Lighten Up, and then you guys. So Full Nelson is Bobby Egger who does vinyl conflict. I know you know Bobby Egger. Oh yeah, well, okay. Um it's like his hardcore band and it was sick. We were like yeah. together shows together. Uh, Lighten Up was is Perry Shaw. Oh shit! Yeah, he's the the goat, dude. I don't I don't know if he played with them actually. I want to say I've seen them. I don't know if Nick Fury played with them or not. But yeah, that was the vibe. Like just like Pennsylvania to Virginia area. The guy who ran Psych Out, I'm pretty sure his name was Chad. I didn't deal with him directly. Kind of disappeared. I don't know if he, um, you know, kept up with it or not. But yeah, sure. Cool little moment. That's the cool thing about about this world, this music world we do. You build these little moments and some of them exist in a bottle and you got the seed or you didn't. And then some shit goes on and grows into something monstrous, you know? So Nick Fury, I'm assuming, breaks up. And then how soon after does Trapped Under Ice start? Pretty immediately because me, Sam, and Ben were just like jamming all the time. And Sam was obsessed with Madball and Biohazard and Metallica. And were you wait, were you singing in Nick Fury or playing guitar? I played guitar. Okay. So this is the first official band that you're like fronting then, right? 
Well, I was playing guitar at first. No, for Trapped Under Ice. I was playing guitar at first. Oh, 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 okay. I've okay. never started a band to sing in it. Okay. Really? Always playing guitar. Yeah. And somebody bails and I'm like, well, I guess I'll do it, you know? Right. Yes. We had somebody singing for Trapped Under Ice and at first it was kind of like, help me with the lyrics. And so I started writing lyrics and then, well, help me with the vocal thing. So I was like, maybe you could do something like this. And then uh, we like went to record and just dude didn't show up. So I was like, all right, I'm going to give it a try, you know? Damn, is that for the demo? That like 2007 demo? Yeah. I think like, it was like the day before we found out he like wasn't going to do it. So it was like, started like finalizing lyrics and then like just, just gave it a whirl. And like at the time, I remember I, we, like discussing that we wanted the vocals to sound like very biohazard, very Evan Seinfeld. And it's like, I'm just completely not capable of that. you know. <laughs> so like everybody doubted it in the moment, especially myself, you know, like, is this, yeah. this is work? Right. Dude, yeah. what was it? I mean, then what was it? Were you just like so nervous, like yelling into the mic that first time with like knowing that everyone's going to hear what this sounds like? You don't even know what it's going to sound like kind of a deal. It's a room full of friends and like, right. I mean, I, I like, I knew my voice a little bit. Like I would like shout in the background of other people's songs, but like to even sing a full line by myself. Right. Damn. Uh, that's really wild. That's, and did you find yourself like, picking it apart like were you were you doing those songs over and over or were you just like no nah, that's what it's going to sound like let's just move on to the next track we tracked it like in a day yeah pretty sure the uh a couple days later we we're like oh we forgot a line or something and I got uh -huh. to go another punch a line in or something right damn it well that's crazy to think about i love those sorts of stories these things that like did not turn out the way it was supposed to, but it ended up being a lightning in a bottle situation because, I mean, I remember when that demo came out and it was just like pretty instantly, everybody was very, very down with it. Were you shocked at the surprise that that demo got? Um, yeah. I mean, like the first couple months, I felt like nobody got it. You know, like I felt like it wasn't going to crack because we had done some projects that people were really excited about off the bat and i had this i was starting to get this idea of like you put something out and people just go crazy that's how it works you know mm -hmm. um and like since my friend's band's kind of doing that you know like putting something out and it just goes crazy so like the first show we played it was like homies and they were like going crazy and i was like damn my homies are going crazy that's so nice of them to pretend like they like, <laughs> like they're into this yeah and then like richmond and brockton and Lemoyne, Pennsylvania, or Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, or just that area of Pennsylvania was like the first people to kind of start fucking with us. Uh huh. And you're like convincing somebody of an idea. And Trapped in a Race sounded a lot different at that time. So, like, you're selling people on this new idea. And we'd go play those cities a lot. And it took a little while before I think people got it, you know? And, you know, bands that you don't know start hitting you up, like Trash Talk was like one of the first bands to kind of adopt us. And they were like, yo, we got to do a tour with you guys, you know? Right. So, okay. Before we get there, like, so you recorded that with Joe uh, Mitra? Is that how you say yeah. last name? Joe Mitra. Right. Joe Mitra, which is sick because I saw that he's, he also did like early angel dust stuff too. So he's like someone who's obviously been around in your life. So yeah. uh, was that where your relationship with him started? Um, we had recorded some stuff with him 
before that. I think he recorded Nick Fury, actually. Oh, okay, cool. So someone that you that also helps. It's like going in with someone that you have sort sort of a rapport with to yeah. Uh, so that helps. And then also that that was like flat spot, like number two or something like that, too, which is cool to see how much that label has obviously grown from like putting out the demo to like today where it's like, you know, it's a thriving, big, big ass hardcore label. You know what I'm saying? It, it, you know, it's really crazy to like if you if you know Che who, who started it, he's like always been like a scrappy but stylish. Like just cool, swaggy. Yeah. Uh-huh. Met him at Hardcore in like Northern Virginia mainly. I feel like I'd see him a lot there. And he started coming to Baltimore all the time, really young. And I remember we were in Kenny's basement one time and he had smoked pot. And we were like, that's crazy, bro. You smoke pot. We're all straight edge, you know? I'm pretty sure he was high on pot. And he's like telling me about, he was explaining Hardcore to me. Not like he didn't think I knew what it was, but I think he was just so excited. He had to articulate what he felt about Hardcore. <laughs> yeah. He was telling me about like, yo, Hardcore's, we're like, 15 years old dude we're like kids yeah but he's hardcore the coolest thing in the world yo it's like it's like all the coolest things about rock and roll music but you just cut all the bullshit just cut all the bullshit out that i don't want to hear it's all the best parts of like rock and roll music and heavy metal it's just you smush it all together it's like when i first met him i was sitting on my couch he's just like explaining hardcore to me so aggressively and he's like tell me about his label we started and how he wants to change the world and he wants to do all these things and he just like never always grown but never changed like it's like that's che like that he's the same person if he walked in my door right now he's gonna cut you off he's gonna tell me about how much he loves hardcore still you know and how beautiful it is to watch it grow and yeah it's a moment he's been manifesting since i met him 22 23 years ago you know damn and not to take anything from ricky saying that's my dog and ricky's you know I think he's the kind of person who's always shared that sentiment and um, obviously does now. Was Ricky involved then? No, it was like a couple of years later, Ricky got involved. Okay. Yeah. I, I mainly know Ricky. So yeah, that's wow. That's so funny. Yeah. Ricky's an international celeb, dude. Everybody knows it's Ricky. Um, <laughs> and Shay's kind of like that too, but especially if you're from this area and, and Shay's lived in Baltimore, like he was, he was a Northern Virginia guy then. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah just crazy like that that desire and that love for for aggressive music is just like unwavering i love it it's very inspiring so in 2008 you guys do the the stay cold record and right out the gate i have to i just i never realized that dan higgs did the art for that how did that come together for listeners dan higgs is singer of the discord band longfish very legendary beloved sort of uh storied musician so like how did dan higgs come into the picture to do that He's also like one of the more influential tattoo artists in the world, which turned into artists. You know what I mean? It's like fools. He's like known for visual art and, you know, sonic art, obviously. Um, but his son is Clippa, who was the original guitar player in Trapped Under Ice. Holy shit. Okay. I didn't realize that. It's a strange. Clippa's like the. Um, how, I don't even know where to begin. He's like the most extremely dynamic for better or worse person I've ever met. He's just so many things all in one. He's like what you would expect if if Dan Higgs had a child with the local rocker in Baltimore. Yeah. And then they grew up in, uh, Clippa grew up in, in Hamden, which is like a pretty nice part of Baltimore now. Um, Like houses are expensive there now, but 
our whole childhood until maybe like 10 years ago, Hamden was like, like the kind of like the white hood of Baltimore, like the white projecty cheap, poor area where psycho people happen. And so Dan Higgs, who's like a very eccentric artist has a child and he's raised in like the white, the white hood in Baltimore. So he's got like a chin strap and he like sells drugs, but he has like an artist brain. He's just fucked up, man. I, I love him. He's just like, just, just got a lot of demons and he, he's got a lot of light in him. Uh, and he's again, just a very creative person. And his dad is Dan Higgs. So we, uh, I remember we were like, dude, it'd be so crazy if we could get your dad to do the art for Stake Hold. And him, it's like annoying probably. He's like, fucking dumbass dad. What the fuck do you want my dad to do art for? <laughs> you know? Yeah, right, right, right. It's not as cool to him. Yeah. So we're like, dude, we got to get him to do it. So we like record Stake Hold. We gave it to Dan Higgs. He's probably the first person who had it on recording. And he's like, he's an artist, man. This dude's like done so many cool influential things in our community. He's like given us so, he's contributed so much to what we do now. And we give him the recording. And we're like, just paint what you feel, man. Like, you just listen to that shit, whatever you feel, bro. We're going to put it on the record. And he comes back and, me, and Clip was like, let's go meet my dad and get the thing, you know? We're like, I'm like, yes, this could be so cool to talk to him about what he thought about this. All the, at this point, I'm like, what, 21 years old, I think. And I was, I've been working this music shit now for like, said like nine years, I guess, like nine yeah. years of work. And I'm like, ready to go to the next level and express myself and give it to Dan Higgs. What did you think? He's like, man, that shit sucked. I couldn't fucking listen to it. It was inaudible garbage, but I painted y'all this. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I painted. Um, it's not yeah. inspired by this music. I don't, I couldn't listen to this shit. You know, like he was, he was a lot kinder than that. I'm, I'm no, I feel yeah. it. I feel it. Oh, that's like, amazing. That was the sentiment that the sentiment though, he was like, this ain't for me, you know? This is just kind of wild trash. Right. That's so goddamn funny. That's but so, so funny. It, the painting told the story of, you know what I mean? Like, uh, for those who don't know, it's like, you have the record cover. This, it's a close-up on the eye. But if you zoom out, it's more of a, it's a bigger painting, which is like pretty, you can like Google stakeholder and usually a lot yeah, of times. Yeah, sure. Up. Well, we use the whole painting for uh, oppressing of the seven inch, but it's like the two faces and one of them is white and feels very cold and the other one's more earthy yeah. and sick image like it just feels like what my brain was and what we how we were as people when that recording happened and i think the close-up on the eye is really cool and dramatic um you guys also did the split with uh dirty money that same year and it's i didn't i I was trying to remember like, oh yeah, it's a singer of High Viz that was a singer of that band, right? Like looking at both of you guys now, it's like all these years later, you guys are, you know, you've continued to always do the, you know, to do what you do with Trap and Rise and Angel Dust. But like, is it, I'm sure it's pretty cool to see him now in High Viz, like taking on this new, this new era. It, it kills me because I've always had this attraction to Graham, like, like this, um, like the, something about myself that I've seen in him when we were kids you know, I first started talking to him and there's a lot of ways we're different, but you know, it's like, there, there's something authentic to me about him. And what that is, is exactly the same. And like I was saying about Che, like, like, I think I'm this exactly the same person. I've just grown a lot and, you know, it might look different. It might sound different, but it's, I'm still pursuing the same thing. And I love the same thing 
that I did when I was a kid. And Graham's like that. He's just so when it's like me and Graham are together, I feel just like I did when I met him, you know, where it's like he's like exciting and inspiring and he has good positive energy to be around. And uh I always said when when I first heard Dirty Money, what I loved about it, I felt like um a lot of UK and European bands would sing with like a New York accent or something. Uh-huh. Like doing hardcore music. And, and I was yeah. like, I don't understand you, but German accent, that's the hardest accent. That shit sounds crazy as fuck. That's why I like True Blue. Like it sounds like an angry German fool. His English is trash. Like he's all over the place. And I I felt it. So when I heard Dirty Money, and it's like a very like dude's voice was so Liverpool and I guess is Scouse a word? I think Scouse is how people describe it. Maybe I'm wrong. It's like hard ass English accent. Yeah. And that's what sold me on the music. And uh like I, I love everything about that band. But yeah, again, I just always thought it was a standout thing with his voice and like hearing his voice in context of more articulate rock music. Um more just like a cool way to cool version of of that person, Graham. And and yeah. Rob. Rob was in Dirty Money and hearing how he's grown as a musician and like what he's attracted to musically. Um, we're all, we're all growing. I think that's a cool thing with music too, is like people have this idea of staying true to a certain sound. And I don't think it's, that's the case. I think what's important is to stay true to who you are because the people who liked Trapped Under Rice when it came out saw something of themselves and what I was doing. And as I grow and make music, those people are growing too. And they want to hear, they want to continue to grow with you. And it's like, I get that experience from that group of people. Yeah, 1,000%. Like. For sure. So that was 2008. You mentioned that trash talk hitting you guys up. So I know we've talked about this in the past, but like, I just love that like the fifth Touche show was with trash talk and trapped under ice in uh, like Valencia or something like that. Um, I remember us just feeling so scared to play that show because we were like also like first of like seven or something like that. Trash talk, internal affairs, trapped under ice, down presser, catch your breath, Johnny Cage. That was the show. Bro, that's not a that's that's a no joke lineup, dude. It's pretty crazy. It's pretty crazy to think about. And I yeah, and like I remember I still like we have the flyer printed in a in a book that we did, but it's like yeah, we're like very small at the bottom, just like hanging out, but. I mean, we were so new and we were just so excited to like play that show, but also felt like, man, I, we're going to get, we're going to get beat up if we play this show. <laughs> oh, no way. I remember being so excited about your band. Like just like seeing you guys as people, like I knew that like you and Luis were people in LA before I went there. You know, I met Luis like a day or two before that show. Like we stayed at somebody's house and he was there. Like, he might've been living there. I forget. Yeah. But, like for sure. going there and seeing you guys there and then seeing like you playing music and it was relevant to things that I liked. Like, I'm not super well versed in this lane, but I was like really into Screamo when I was young. And I liked like Seisha, for example. And I really liked A Love Lost But Not Forgotten. And then later, uh, dance. Uh, so good. Page 99 and Circle Takes the Square and those types of bands. Yeah. Like, seeing that in you guys at a show with Trash Talk and Internal Affairs where people were just getting their ass beat all crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. So, wait, I forget because there's a, there's a part of the story here. Which, which band? Because you were in a band with Dave from Pianos Become the Teeth, right? Oh, yeah. Well, he jammed. He was supposed to be in Trapped Under Ice originally. We like, it was an idea we threw so around. So crazy to think about. Um, we like jammed with him a couple of times. And we jammed on some other stuff too. We've played. Okay. Some contexts. Yeah. So jamming together now. We're going to practice tomorrow, I think. 
Dude, he's one of the sickest drummers in the entire world. It's I've been like cursed and blessed by the best. I've played with the best drummers in aggressive music. And like, you can't even debate it. Like, I wouldn't for a second. But between Dave, Daniel Fang, Brendan Yates, Lou Medina. Are you kidding me? And fucking Tommy. Tom, oh, dude. Oh my God. I'm so sorry. I didn't think I was thinking of old school. No, dude, I feel you. Are, you. are you kidding me, dude? Yeah. Tommy is disgusting. It's, it's sickening. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, you, you've truly been blessed with rip and ass drummers. I could never go back. I could never go back. I know, so, right? I had a conversation with Daniel when when we knew that Turnstile members couldn't play in Trapped or couldn't play in Angel Dust. Yeah. If the band was going to happen, because there was a moment where we were like, we're not going to do, I, at least for me, I was like, I'm not going to do Angel Dust anymore. I don't want to do it unless it's with these people. At that time is how it felt. And then we said, if it was going to be a band, it would have to be these people. We listed off a couple people that are exactly what Angel Dust is now. And when I first hit up Tommy to do it, he like was not available. And I was like, well, that's it. There's just, we're not, not going to do this then, you know? Oh shit. And then he hit me up later being like, Hey, do you want to jam? I got some time. And then it just turned into what it was him or nobody. It was, I was, was not considering making yeah. another person. Where did you first see Tommy put, did you guys play shows with gouge away or with the axis or something? Um, saw Axis a couple times. Yeah, back, back when, and knew he was Buck Wild, and then we toured with Galge Away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, just uh, yeah, I figured we could just like touch on specific records and stuff like that. I don't, I don't want to have to bore you with like going through your entire discography here. But like with uh, with Secrets of the World, you guys recorded that with the same person that actually recorded Stay Cold, right? The Dean Baltulis. How do you spell that last name? Baltulonis, I think. Baltulonis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um was there did you have like any sort of anxiety going in to do the full length after you've done these eps and stuff like that like were you um did you i guess there's you know especially at that time like there's something to be said about like the first demo the first seven inch all that sort of stuff people really attach themselves to that and then there's sometimes the anxiety that comes with now doing a full length did you feel that or were you just excited to do a full length um I think just excitement, but also at the same time, there was this element of like uh, Reaper Records was like investing money in it. And at this, at that time in my life, it was like, I've never heard of somebody putting that much money into a record, you know? And I knew how much risk he was taking and really didn't want to let Patrick, the Reaper Records guy, didn't want to let him down. And he was there and he's cool. And like, we looked up to him. So there was some pressure there. And then it's like knowing that Dean is like an animal. He's like done incredible sounding records with bands that we love. He's like sculpted the sound of, of hardcore as we know it, you know, it was intimidating, but just a fun experience. How long were you guys in the studio for that? I think that was two weeks. We okay. were so poor, man. Like, like we were like really, really poor. We like, we didn't know that you're supposed to make money for playing shows. There's like a theme with, with trapped under ice in the beginning. It was like, we would like go play the show in Richmond and come back and somebody call and be like, Hey, we got a hundred bucks for you, which, you know, a hundred bucks was crazy. Then it was like unheard like, of for a band to make a hundred bucks. You know? Totally like, straight up, straight up. So, uh, like, well, we could have made a hundred bucks. What the fuck? We like, le we just left it there. <laughs> There's no like sending us the money. Right. Like, we won't have the money. So it's, it's, I remember David Wood booked the show and he was like, I'm just going to order some pizzas or something. We're like, let's go have fun. Right. 
that ship that ship has sailed for us. <laughs> um, but yeah, we were really broke and we wanted to record. And we like, I know we all drove up, drove up together. And we like pitched in for gas, and we didn't have enough money to pay for gas for another car to come. Mm. So we like got there, and then we there was a McDonald's down the street. We ordered one menu off the dollar menu, like one item off the dollar menu every day, um, which I think was like a McDouble at the time was one dollar. So I get a McDouble every day. That studio was in New York, um, in Queens specifically, Astoria. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Damn, um, legendary part of Queens where it's like a lot of my favorite hardcore came from. Uh, yeah, he had recorded like Mad Ball bands like that, right? Mm-hmm. He was working with um. Mike Dijon a lot at the time. I think Mike Dijon was producing records and was working out of that studio sometimes. Did you, were you at least, you know, we talked about going back to the same people and we did, we talked about that with, uh, with Joe moments ago, but like, did you feel that going back to Dean a second time after you had done stay cold with him? Um, felt what specifically? Like, just like comfortable, like less, I guess maybe a little bit less pressure. Cause at least you knew the person's personality. Yeah, f- definitely far more comfortable with him at that point. That was a factor that made it a little easier. Sure. And then so when it came to doing Big Kiss Goodnight a couple of years later, you guys did that, I'm assuming, out in Orange County, right? Yeah. Because you did it with Paul Miner. Dude, Paul Miner's the coolest. Yeah, I yeah. would do anything to relive that experience. It was such a great group of people. It's, I learned yeah. so much. Talk to me about it. Because obviously, you know, and Chad from Newfound Glory was involved as well. Chad Gilbert as a in a producer role. Um, but Paul Miner, you have engineering. I'm assuming he also was probably throwing out ideas and stuff like that too. So yeah, talk to me about what that was like for you guys. When we talk about getting comfortable in a studio, I think this is where it really started to come into play. And not because anybody did anything wrong in the past. It's just like me growing as an as an artist. And uh, Chad like created a lot of boundaries that I think I think a lot about making music now. Like I've been producing music and a lot of things that he like kind of sets up for for success a lot of his tools i i have my tool bag now but like we did like a a solid week and a half i think of like 10 days of of pre-production before we even got in the studio oh nice just rented a little space and just ran through i think we had like 25 songs that we had to narrow down to full songs or just like skeletons or like full songs wow um that were like pretty ready to go and I want to say 25 and we narrowed it down. So I forget what Big Kiss Goodnight is, maybe 12. Mm-hmm. Maybe four. I feel like Big Kiss Goodnight is a long record. Maybe, I don't know. Yeah. Had to narrow it down. And we went over a lot of stuff. And Chad like took apart some songs and threw some some new ideas in there. And a lot of it was stuff we used, some stuff we didn't. And it wasn't weird. You know, it was cool. He was like, really. Like, like if he tossed out an idea that you guys were kind of like not feeling, he wouldn't take it to heart. Wouldn't take it to heart, but there were some ideas that he believed in so wholeheartedly that he would, you know, very kindly fight. He's a very patient person to, you know, at least in the context of that. Right. Uh, but like, we had some cool little rules that I liked. Like it was like uh, we all got like a power card. So if I didn't like a song and I didn't, and I was like, hey, I'm using my power card to get rid of the song. This actually happened. I'm pretty sure my power card was to remove a song that Brennan's power card was to bring back, if I'm not mistaken. Wow. You probably don't remember what song it is though, do you? It's called Draw the Line. Okay. And Brendan ended up like writing the vocal patterns, like using some lyrics that I wrote. And I think he might have wrote some lines of the lyrics too. Wow. And I was like, 
not feeling the song just not because it wasn't good there's there's a thing you know it's like where like this happened before where sam could write the coolest hardcore song of all time and i just can't make the song happen you know but i still love the song sure um, kind of like the the never ending game song that sam wrote with them recently um like it was like like pieces of a trapped in a race song that we didn't use hmm. i couldn't make it happen and then sam and will worked on it together will from never ending game and started feeling more authentic and then mikey does his thing on it and it's fucking badass and then then i'm like let me get in on it too bro i got i know i got something for it you know right but yeah it was like one of the situations was i couldn't finish the song and brendan was like bro i got it he finished the song one thing i think is interesting is that's where i think trapped in a race got the most melodic i agree most melodic trapped in a race material and i had planned to sing a lot more and I, i think chad was completely right about this at the time now looking back but I, I wanted to sing a lot and, and chad was like no I, I like what you're singing but we have to dial it back because people are going to say oh you're just singing because chad did this or just the way music was then and the way it was perceived um you couldn't grow that fast you couldn't like adopt new tools that fast you had to introduce them slowly now it's like and that puts something to me though like i think that whole recording process puts something to me to be like I just want to break it all the time. I want to like push it just enough to get everybody mad. And, you know, a year or two later, everybody's fucking with it. That's the thing with Big Kiss Goodnight. Nobody liked it at first. It really did not pop off. People like have like weird ideas and even memories of that being like a really successful record right off top. And it just wasn't. It's like we put out singles and nobody, I think the first thing we put out was You and I, which is a song Mm -hmm. later on the record, which shouldn't have been a single. But, uh, people were like livid about that in this day like nowadays how much trouble do you have picking a single do you usually know pretty quickly like when it comes to angel dust where you're just like oh this is the one i have no idea you know it's like everything that we write like the record we just wrote and we're releasing now i love every song so much and that's such such a cop-out it's like i wouldn't be doing it if i didn't feel that way right songs are singles and murals you wouldn't hear none of it so it's all about like which single, which version of the single do you want? What headspace? Um, because specifically with this new record, Brand New Soul, it's like, um, it's the most dynamic thing I think I've ever been involved with, where it's like all these different things that I've done before and that the other guys have done before all in one place. Mm-hmm. So it's like, what do you, what do you feel fucking with right now? You want some aggressive rock and roll music? This is the song. Right. You want, uh, you want like a fucking... Prince David Bowie club banger. This is the song, you know, but I don't, I don't know what people want Just do. What, just do what you want and hope that people fuck with it. Hey there. Do you need to get some merch printed? My incredible sponsors over at anchorfish printing has a great deal going on right now. You can get 100 soft style shirts for only 499 bucks. Do the math. That's a great deal for details. Email Michael at anchorfishprinting.com. You can also visit anchorfishprinting.com and see what else they have to offer. They are a one-stop shop for all your merch needs. And don't forget to mention the first ever podcast when you place your order. I want to make sure that we didn't forget to to go through this really quick. Uh, But what was the very first tour that you ever did? Ooh. Um, was it Nick Fury? 
Yeah, Nick Fury did some weekends and stuff. Um, before that, even I did, I was touring. That band, the Fall Line, and I'd, I've done some like little weekend stuff before that. You know, you had mentioned early at the top of this interview, like you know, being a little uh, like like aspects of tour, not some of your favorite stuff. When you were that age, though, did you love it pretty quickly, or were you were you always a little hesitant about it? I loved it because it was like a, my imagination was being stimulated and like I could be traveling and seeing the world and learning all this stuff. Cause my life was really, you know, I never left my neighborhood, you know, I guess a lot of kids don't leave their neighborhoods. So that's not that crazy, but uh, it's like going like for the fall line. I, I remember we always would go to, we'd like tour to Madison, Wisconsin. That was like the end goal. Oh, how funny. I'd do a couple of dates out to Madison, Wisconsin, do a little Midwest and then come back. But like, I feel like Madison and Milwaukee kind of had a thing at the time that we were into. Um, but I was, I was like, I was a weird kid and I was like the youngest of, of my group. So I definitely like, didn't always fit in, but had people around me who looked out for me and, and loved me. But I do remember feeling like a little isolated and lonely. And I understand why, again, I was a weird kid. I got like fucking as an adult. Now I know I have ADHD. Like I didn't know that when I was a kid. And I was just weird all the time. And like, I would get naked. You know what I mean? Just like just insatiable urge to get on everybody's nerves. Fair, fair. It's it's weird. You start touring that young and you, you do kind of find yourself in, comp I, at least I found myself in compromising situations. And I was just thinking about this one kind of recently. And I, I, to I told somebody, I'm like, man, it's so crazy. But it didn't even register in my brain as like dangerous situations. Um, but it's like, I was like, 15 years old we played in indiana and this guy had us come play his like little weird venue and it was like cool show and then he's like let me get you guys some hotels and he got hotels and he was like oh you're you can stay in the hotel room with me and he's like really pushing for me to stay with him in his hotel room and he had like really nice hotel rooms at hot tubs and nobody ever we never got a hotel room before you know and the dude like it's so crazy in context looking back uh it's probably like 30 four years i'm gonna guess i'm 34 i remember he looked like drew carey and there's hot tubs in the room and, I, and he's like let's get in the hot tub and i was like yeah we're waiting for colin who was one of the people in the band waiting for colin to get in the hot tub he's like oh yeah he's coming so me and the dude get in the hot tub by ourselves and colin's not coming we're just like in a room in a hot tub he's like touching my thighs and shit oh and I was no like, dude that's so weird why is he touching my thighs like he's a really touchy guy and like ended up you know put my clothes on and went and hung with the rest of the band i, I was like is this weird? And nobody ever said it was weird, but they got really protective of me. They were like, no, nah, we're going to hang out here. We're going to order a pizza. I think this is the vibe. And I, if I'm not mistaken, I feel like one dude went to the other room and then came back. Luckily, I've always had good people around me, though, like that looked out for me and shit. Right. I was like tight with skinheads when I was a little kid and like scary people that like uh, just lived a really crazy lifestyle. And I wasn't super aware of it, you know, and right. Um, somehow never was hurt or taken advantage of within our our community you know that was what, what was your first uh tour overseas like european tour um dirty money trapped under ice and lion of judah oh shit wow that's that's quite that's that's a very of the era yeah yeah <laughs> where uh how long was it what was it like how did you feel about it um, I want to say three weeks. Um, we had booked some of the shows ourselves. Um, some of the members of that band, Justice, helped us 
some more of a DIY tour, but it was like really successful. And, um, was that like 2008? I, I would say, yeah, 2008 makes exact sense. Yeah. Cause that's when that split came out, but I was just wondering if it was maybe a year later around that same time, but right. I would say within a couple months before or after. Cool. Probably. Yeah. After. Was there any shows that stood out to you that like blew your mind where you're like, Oh my God, I can't people pimp like, like people singing along maybe in a country that just like floored you. We played, I want to say it's pressure fest, German fest. Uh-huh. Almost certain it's pressure fest, but forgive me if I'm mixing up names, but uh, that was like the first large scale festival where people who in a different country that far from home, like know all the words to your song and you can, jump out in the crowd and there's enough people to catch you right uh, i mean the whole thing was memorable and a learning experience there was like lows we all got robbed we had our our van got broken into oh fuck it's funny because that was so long ago and every now and then somebody will talk to me about that and like there's always like new theories about what happened but oh, some shit. people told us that the promoter was sketchy and they think the promoter set us up oh no where Who was knows? it was it in germany italy italy um, but we had all of Line of Judah and uh, uh, Trapped Under Ice were both in the same van. So it was like all of our money, all of our passports, our camera, like our uh, van money. Like it was like the end of the tour. So like, and there was nowhere to put money. So I think like collective, we lost like 40,000 euro and maybe like, I think it was like something similar in pounds too. Jesus Christ. So we could have like did really good for a first tour. Yeah, I was about to say that's an incredible amount of money for a DIY. <laughs> Jesus, dude. Yeah, you know, we would be on it, but you know, and again, it's collectively between two bands at the end of a tour. It's like that's basically your costs of touring. But right. Sure. To do a tour that early and like pay for your costs is was unheard of then. It's still pretty tough now, you know. Yeah. God damn. So uh what was when you decided to start Angel Dust? Because the first thing that came out was that seven inch. It was the extra raw seven inch, right? Yeah. Like, how long had you been working on that idea? Or was that like a pretty quick sort of like, let's start a new band. Let's go record like in a couple weeks. Like, what was the story there? So I've been like working on songs like for fun, like kind of knowing that like Trapped Under Ice doesn't, isn't going to do certain things musically that I just want to do. I want to experiment and try these things. And it's not the way this is going to go. And there were like signs that we were going to be taking time off. So um, I've been writing songs. And actually, when we recorded Big Kiss Goodnight, um, You and I was originally supposed to be an Angel Dust song. Oh, interesting. And there's a, a song on, on Extra Raw called Step Inside that I had wrote for Trapped Under Ice and realized that it wasn't going to be a track. I was like, this just doesn't make sense. Just starting to like riff and have fun with the idea around then. And then after we like went on hiatus from doing Trapped Under Ice, like I started jamming with with Daniel Fang, Pat McCrory, who were both playing Turnstile, and Nick Heitman. And originally the idea was we were like writing new songs for Nick Heitman to sing on. Nick Heitman heard some demos from what was called Angel Dust, which was like my like weird fun solo thing that we were trying. He was like, I want to record these songs. And I was like, bro, I got this vision. I've always wanted to sing these songs a certain way. I wanted to, like, I'm down for you to do it, but you got to do it exactly how I want. And uh, he's like, yeah, I'm down. And then we like recorded the songs and he's like, I want to change all these vocal things. And I was like, 
can't do that, dude. Like, like you have to sing these things. Like we, I wrote a record for you to sing on. Right. This was written with this very specific idea in mind. And, um, that's how it turned into me singing. And then Nick ended up playing bass. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I remember picking that up right, right when it came out. And I, how do you feel about what those songs sounded like versus like how the, how the tracks on like AD ended up coming out. Cause I, I correct. It's been a minute since I've listened to them, but like, I almost felt like that first angel dust thing almost had more of like a bad brain Z sort of like quickness to it. Whereas the songs on AD felt a little more, uh, I don't know, I guess sort of like straightforward rock songs. Like what d- does that make any sense to you? Yeah. I mean, the process informs the product, you know, or, or the, the outcome. And it's like, Going into do extra raw, we didn't know what we wanted it to sound like. I still like having an idea of what I want something to sound like is like a new idea to me. It's mm. always been going and throwing shit at the wall and seeing what works with these songs. And for Joe Mitra, who was recording at the time, I think he had no gauge. I had a couple reference points, but Bad Brains being like the majority of it, you know. Sure. Um, and then there was like an element of like power pop, like influence. Like, listen to extra all, you're not going to hear that. You know, yeah. just being like, same thing with Trapped Under Ice. It's like, I always, I always cite Prince. Like, Prince has been like one of the most influential things on Trapped Under Ice. And it's like, you'll never hear it and hear Prince. It's like songwriting, it's like uh, hook value and like where, like placing reoccurring hooks to, to bring you in. That's the, that's the Prince. That's the pop music. Um, there but, is, unde- there is like undeniable grooves though, which, you could feel that DNA in there. Yeah, dude. Yeah, I, yeah. I think everybody, everybody loves Prince in the shot of your mind for sure. But <laughs> true, true. Um, yeah, extra, extra, extra. Roll was a little aimless, and I remember talking to Joe afterwards, and he was like, "Hey, I like." He's like, "I get it now." Like after we already released the music, and I was like, "What do you mean?" And he's like, "I don't think he meant this. Like he wasn't fucking with it, but like he just he was like, I just didn't get it when we started. Right. I didn't know what it was. And I think it was after we played." live the first time he was like i know what this is now you know fair i think ad is a good representation of what it what it was like yeah what was it like working with brian mcturnan was that your first time working with brian mcturnan he's like a hero he's like one of those heroes that doesn't ever disappoint you like he still just is as cool as he was when i met him you know sure yeah i had him on the show and that was like my first time ever really talking to him. And I was just like, uh, like, I, it was hard for me not to be like, yo, remember when you did that one record? That record sounds sick. You know what yeah. I'm saying? <laughs> He's, he seems like appreciative of th- that kind of acknowledgement. He's never like annoyed or too cool. <clears throat> he seemed, yeah, he was very, very kind. He is too cool. Like literally he's so cool. And like, he could be that guy and it, that's fine. I've heard stories of him being, he can be kind of tough on vocalists. You know, yeah. when it comes to like, like just kind of singing properly, shall we say? Like, did you have that experience at all with him? So I'm like the kind of person I really appreciate feedback. And if, and the only thing that offends me in the studio is if I feel that you're holding back from feedback. Oh, interesting. That's cool. Something and I look over and, and you're making some dumb face and I say, How, what's, what, what's going on? What are you thinking? And you say, oh, I don't know. It's pretty good. Fuck you. You're a coward. Like, how could you respond and in any way and then not tell me like the, the art is so important it's like you're gonna risk me doing something stupid on recording 
because you're afraid to tell me how you feel. And mm. even furthermore, again, I've seen this before where it's like you do something. And this is what I talk about creating doubt in the studio. And somebody in the other room makes a face like, oh, that's crazy. I don't know about that. It's like every one of those things I've ever done where somebody gave me some stupid face, that's the shit that motherfuckers love in the song, you know? Right, 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 right. Yeah. So what I love about Brian is Brian does not for a second hold back and he's not mean. He's, and once once he realized that I get off on that, then we entered the lane of truly honest communication where I would do something. He'd be like, that sounded like shit. What is wrong with you? Like, I know you know better than that. And I'd be like, well, tell me what, what's the, what it sounded like shit. And he would rip me up, you know? And that made me, that's the first time in my life I ever even understood the concept of singing. I didn't know that when you're singing, you're actually singing those notes. You know right. what I mean? I didn't know you're imitating what a guitar is doing by playing notes and um, putting it to time. I didn't know that's what singing was, you know? Sure, sure. Oh, that makes so much sense with that record too, because the harmonies in it and like what you're doing vocally, it's obviously like that was such a big step up for any of the bands you'd ever done, you know? So it makes sense that there was that communication there. A lot of a lot of growth in that happened in, in that in that time. It like changed so much about my understanding of the role that vocals play in music and what my voice is capable of. And he was patient and we got to try a lot of stuff, but again, just very effective in communicating with me and how I communicate. And I think Rob Schnaff is another person who's really good at that. Like, yeah, I was going to definitely bring him up in regards to this, but obviously the next record you guys did was with Will Yip. And if you're taking what you learned from the Brian McTernan situation and then apply it to Will, who's like pretty, from what I understand, I've only worked with him once and it was very briefly, but like, you know, he can be very uh, hands-on when it comes to then the musical side of things, you know, like yeah. making the drummer play a ton, you know, getting tones and all that sort of stuff. So it's like, if you're applying what you learned from Brian and then taking it to Will, who's now going to be extra on like the music side, uh, I like, how did that work for you? So Will has a very different style. Approach, yeah. And like part of it is, and I do really value this, and this is awesome. I think, especially with my team, it, it works really well with them. Not, It's not so much like what I I like, but I do appreciate that he, Will's not going to like let you do something dumb on a recording. He'll find a way around it without being abrasive, you know? Right. It's like, it's like not, I, I like you just be like, dog, you suck. Like, tell me what it is. But again, I really do like his method. He's a, uh, his thing is like, he'll just drive you and push you and push you to like, and it sometimes is overwhelming. And it's like, I've seen overwhelming moments in his studio where we always joke and say, uh, Daniel Fang recording Rock the Fuck On, the Angel Dust record, was like watching Whiplash, the movie. Have you seen Whiplash? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The stress like that you feel in those scenes where he's like bleeding. Yeah. And, and the, the, not like, my tempo yeah yeah um so they had it was weird will and daniel had that relationship where there was he was like driving daniel and there's literally i remember they got done playing and will's like you have to go clean all the blood off my drums because i'm not touching that shit because there was literally blood all over the drums i've never seen anything like that damn and on that record i think this is a cool thing to say it's like there's not one sound that's punched in on drums they did not punch one thing that's like yeah. Daniel went and played the song and there'd be a moment where it's like um, Daniel hit one snare a little bit inconsistent in the the bridge of the song and we would be like, hey, it's crazy. You got to redo the whole song. <laughs> you know, I was like, there's like 
I, I have like a little bit of I'll go into a little trauma scenario thinking about the like stress. Right. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. How did Daniel do with all that? Daniel loves that kind of, that kind of like pushing somebody, you know? Right. It's like being pushed physically and mentally. And I think a lot of people know this and you can see it. I swear. I think Daniel did the most growing as a drummer. That's mm. like, that's where you get the Daniel that you see now. He's always been phenomenal. He could play hardcore, play super fast, do all the crazy fills. He hits the drums so hard. This is where he learned to hit drums hard and articulate every note, the sound like the same instrument and um, challenging himself with, I think some of the church influence stuff he does playing more consistently, allowing himself to, to like sit in a groove and, and, and uh, feed the song. And, you know, again, with hardcore, it's like, it's, it's doing as much as possible. It's like everybody's showing off at the same time, but it's letting yourself fall back and support the team and then pull up and, and shine when you need to. It's like Daniel became a tremendous drummer in that time. And this is the same time that you guys start pop wig. Right, because it is um, is rock the fuck yeah. on one. Because I feel like rock the fuck on, and then uh, that turnstile seven inch are like kind of the first releases, right? What was the motivating factor there? Just like we'd worked with a lot of friends that do hardcore labels, and I think they all were doing a great job. There were certain things that we just wanted that weren't typical, you know. And I think some of those things I saw Run for Cover doing for for their world. So we like kind of reached out to them and asked them to help us on our journey to build our version of that, you know, and, you know, while Popwig has always been independent, we've always owned it. Like the people at Run for Cover um, were tremendous in like helping us set up what it's going to be and facilitating us along the way. And sure. like, did they help with like the manufacturing distribution side of yeah. things? Yeah, yeah totally. And now it's like, we don't work with Run For Cover, but it's like Dane from Run For Cover works for Popwig. You know, I still call, I got some questions, and like hit Tom or something, you know? Sure. Incredibly supportive to our team. Yeah. And I don't know that I've ever fully known like who actually is behind Popwig. Like, cause I know it's like kind of a coll seemingly like collected between like Angel Dust and Turnstile, but like at this point, who's, who's sort of like running the show? Um, Mostly me and Dan. Um, and Dane, who's, who was with run for cover. Um, and dude, just shout out to Dane McGoldrick. It's like that fool just keeps us afloat. Like me and Daniel have ideas and we were as active as we can be, but both of us right now are like spread so thin and Daniel's like a soldier too, man. It's like, it's crazy. Like the. The times when I'm like seeing my my feed is just like friends showing Daniel on the sold out stadium concert, you know, and yeah. like yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know I can't imagine what what all goes into the production. I have no idea, and I, I like um. At the same time, I'm like doing club shows with Angel Dust and staying very busy, and Daniel's like on top of keeping records and getting things paid off and doing this and doing that and communicating with Dane to make sure we have everything we need. So that's awesome. It's funny. I was just, I literally was talking to Dane yesterday because he posted that like he had just been working on like a, like a Google sheets, a document for like nine hours straight. And then it didn't save and it just deleted the entire thing. 
So I was like, this hurts my head so bad. I feel so bad for you. Like, are you all right? And then he was like, you're going to, he's like, dude, it's even worse that you're going to, you're going to hate this. He said he was literally typing out and documenting all of his, his entire record collection. Oh like, man. Like all the variants, everything he had. And that's what didn't save. He's like, you're going to hate this so much more. And we told me that I wanted to cry for him. I was like, dude, you don't want to, you're not, you're never going to do that again. Like you're never going to start over doing that again. That's, that's why he's such a powerful tool in our on our team it's like he loves records yeah he loves music and he cares about the details of it and i'm not, i've never been a detail person you know especially with uh with you know i, I had a pretty substantial vinyl collection i, I know i've told you about it before it was yeah a, it's like a casualty of me moving to la and my mom was like she doesn't understand records there's like the things that sit in thrift stores and she doesn't know that she could have retired on my record collection, you know? And I moved to LA and I get there, I get all my stuff and she, she calls me and she's like, I'm moving in one month. So you got to be here to get your stuff. And I'm like, I could have put that stuff in the van. I drove across the country, but you told me this, it was safe here, you know? So my own fault. I'm a grown up. I should have took it. But then I come back one week later and she's leaving in a month, right? Come back one week later. So I can get, I have three weeks to get my stuff out and all my stuff's just gone. All right. I'm like, where's my stuff? Well, I put some in storage. I threw some stuff in the trash and I'm like, what went where? And she uh, pointed me in the direction of where my records were supposed to be. And it was maybe like a 10th of my record collection was in the storage space. And all the records had literally every record had come out of the jackets and they were on the ground covered in water. Water had soaked up in the, in all the, the art, you know, um, really like seeing a really like early pressing of my war black flag, like being used to like broken in half and being used to hold up one of her, like to balance one of her curio cabinets in storage oh. um, in a puddle of water. And I was like, you have, no, you just doing the most valuable stuff in your household. Like everything else you could have thrown away, sold yeah. this and you would, you would have been better off. Oh, she also uh, was like notorious for, she like uh, manages the Polish bar here. Yeah. And she like gives stuff to homeless people or houseless people, you know, and, you know, like people who have like problems. So she would, I would collect shirts like old Madball jersey, old agnostic front shirt, old, like, like rare trapped under ice stuff. And I would have bins of it. And I would go away, I'd like go on tour and she'd be like, all right, now it's time to get rid of some of his junk. <laughs> and she would just give like thousands, tens of thousands of dollars of merchandise <laughs> to like just, drug addicted people yeah and it's like a theme where it's like you could go to this part of baltimore and you would see like the sickest shirts <laughs> with you know and i've heard stories of fools being like yeah i bought the af shirt off this dude for 20 bucks and i'm like that's crazy because you're gonna sell it for 300 dollars now and yeah i'm the only one losing here <laughs> you know everybody <laughs> god damn it but, wow man um <laughs> Before we get to the new record, I just want to give with Pretty Buff and and Yak. Wait, you did Pretty Buff with Will, but Yak you did with uh with uh Rob Schnaff, right? And I remember you working on that record for seemingly so long, where like you were dropping singles from it and you were like coming kind of coming back and forth working with Rob. Uh just like if you want to just like sum up what that what that process was for you, because it, it kind of just felt like it was 
um like consistent but for like a really long time where you would just kind of pop in and out of the studio a lot like we were hanging out a lot at that time you were living obviously in LA um what did you take from that experience um it changed so much of my my perception of like what making a record is it, like it really can be anything like there would be things I'd make at my house and bring to Rob and be like I made this little sound at my house can we make something like that in the studio because obviously we can't use the thing I made at my house He'd be like, yes, we can just load it up. And like, now we're using it. Um, with that being said, most everything was recorded in his studio. And, but it was like a very cool, open process where I'd have a couple of songs and he would have a lot of cool input on it. We'd call Daniel, Daniel would fly out. And then like me, Daniel would record predominantly everything. Um, for, you know, there's like the first session we did, I think it was just me and Daniel. And that was a couple of songs. And then, uh, I think Brendan and Pat both sent me, sent us stems from, from Baltimore for these couple songs, you know? And then it was at a point where I had a couple, and this is like, honestly, we probably spent like a total of three months recording that record over the course of six months. You know what I'm saying? Like three months of time within that window. Um, and then Daniel flew home for a while and we like mixed the, those songs and played with them. And that was like the first three songs I think that came out. It was like never in a game. Mm -hmm. I off the guitar and little house. And we started working on some other stuff in those sessions too. But then we blocked off a, a bigger period of time to like finish an album. And Daniel came out first. We like got a lot of the, the bare bones down. And then Pat and Brendan came out and had a lot of really cool sauce on those songs. But um, that was a really cool process for me. Because again, like I've just slowly been learning the process of being in the studio and what production means. And um, like, what are the, what's the important information you need to get in a performance, you know? What uh what led you to working with him? And for people who are listening, he's been brought up on the show quite a few times because I've had Barry from Joyce Manor on, I've had uh Kevin Devine, Richard Edwards, all these people that have worked with Rob, but he's done, you know, Elliot Smith records, he's done fucking guided by voices, he's done saves a day, like all sorts of stuff. So like what led you to want to work with Rob Schnaff? Um I mean he's like one of the few producers before meeting him. He's one of the few producers that I was like, like an actual, just like a fan of and never thought it would make sense to work with him in context of our band or make sense for him to work with us. If that makes sense. Yeah. And, uh, I was like talking to a friend. It's kind of crazy. I was talking to my roommate and no idea he had any connection with Rob Schnaff. Um, I was just telling him, I'm like, yeah, like it'd be so cool to work with. I like this dude. I like this dude. I was like, but obviously it'd be the coolest thing in the world would be to work with Rob Schnaff but I didn't even know he lived in the area. I was just talking about the producer I liked. Yeah. And the next day my roommate was like, Hey, I talked to Rob. He said, he's down. He, he really likes your band. You should go meet up with him. And I was like, what are you? I thought he was like punking me, you know, like, like one, like the prank show or some shit. It's like, what are you talking about? He was like, yeah, I talked to him. I'm like, he's like, he's going to call you. And then he called me like immediately. And I was like, man, you, you're fucking with me. Right? Like, I don't, you know? Yeah. So what's up? He's actually so cool and straightforward and kind of like works like Brian, maybe like a little less aggressive in tone than Brian, but like, he's like very open and tells you what it is. Yeah. Um, but he calls me, he's like, what's up? I'm like, what's up? He's like, this is Rob. Are we a record or what? What's going on? You know, like, I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if you're for real. I'm like, where are you? And he's like, I'm over here in Glassell Park, which is like 10 minutes from you. Yeah. 
So I like went over first. I was like, let me see if you're a real person. I was like, I just want to come over and hang out first. And he's like, yeah, I guess. And he's just so cool. You like get over there and Matt, his engineer is just so fucking cool. And it's like these two cool ass motherfuckers who they got all the secrets. They know all the tricks. And there's like letting me hang out amongst them and observe what they're doing. It wasn't like an official meeting. It was like, can we come by and just see what's up? It was just so inspiring immediately to see how they work together. So, you know, like hit up the label and confirm time. And um, both of them became very good friends of mine and uh, people that I admire and probably the most influential people in what I love about music now and like what I'm pursuing, what I'm doing, whether that's hardcore or rock and roll music, if it's electronic music. Um, so much of what I do is like through the scope of things I learned in that room and the way I learned to communicate in that room and um, just so much about that process is like why I am who I am right now. And I think it's going to stick with me for a long time and I hope it rubs off on other people that I work with, you know? Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I, dude, I have such a fond memory of, of stopping by the studio when you all were there, I remember it was like, yeah, Jeff, Dan, Brendan, Pat, like all y'all were there. And I remember just being excited to see all you because it was like at some point in the pandemic where it was like seemingly okay to hang out with people and like outside environments. They had that like outside patio area. So I rolled up and just like getting to see all you guys because it had been a while since we had toured together and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but I remember being like, oh man. Like, I hope I get to meet Rob. Like, I'd be so psyched to meet him. And he came out and sat down with us. And at some point, I, like, found a way to, like, strategically punish him, but, like, very briefly, where I was just like, yo, blah, blah, blah. Like, I sort of, like, sold him some records that I really love that he worked on. And he's very, he's, he came off very, like, nice, but dry, sort of like, oh, cool. Yeah, kind of a deal. But then I yeah. remember Pat, Pat sort of, like, stepped up for me and was just like, yo, just so you know, like, if this guy's telling you that, like, this guy is being very serious. Like he loves like whatever kind of a thing. And then I, that I like, it helped that Pat sort of like, you know, gave me that the, uh, the, the, uh, he approved, but I was just being like, yo, like this guy's like for real, like he loves your shit. And then Rob opened up a little bit more and was like, just so kind. So I was just like, I'll forever cherish like that hour that I got to spend with you guys when you were recording. Dude, I think what's interesting about Rob, I don't think he realizes, or maybe he does, but maybe he forgets how much of an impact he has and how important he is to people. So sometimes, and I think his kind of nature is to be like, he doesn't want to be the loud guy in the room. Doesn't want to make it all about him. And he has those moments where he's just being quiet and dry. And, uh, you know, I'll have somebody come over. I ghost man come over. Um, and he's like, he loves Elliot Smith. He's a big fan of Rob's production. He's also a big fan of, Arthur Rizik's production, which is interestingly really influenced by Rob Schnaff. Hmm. Oh, he's doing black metal and yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, dude, there's shit from Elliot Smith recordings I do on black metal records, you know? Uh, so Ghostman's there and he's a fan and he's just really excited. And like, you know, Rob's just like, I'm just a guy, you know, he's like chilling and doing his thing. And I could tell like Ghostman wants to like punish him a little bit. Yeah. I'll like, I'll push in there. I'll be like, Hey Rob, tell me about this guitar. Like it was, it was Elliot's guitar, you know, whatever. Yeah. And I've had those moments where you're like, dude. And I think it was that with, with him. I was like, I was like, dude, ghost man really likes, like really actually a fan. You have to help like validate the person's like, like excitement in a way. Yeah. When, when you tell him that, when you were like, Hey, he, this it's real. 
It's not just us like blowing your head up or something. Then I'll, right, 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 right. Lowers his glasses so he can see his eyes. And then he starts telling you like shit that will is going to change your life, you know? Right. Uh, I, I would be working on something with him and I would reference a recording, not even realizing that it's something that he did. Like, yeah, you know, I, th I think the definitive one, we're, we're doing drum stuff. And I was talking about, I was like, you know, on the Toadies record, there's a sound. And he's like, yeah, what we did was, you did that? What? Wait, I did he do know. Possum Kingdom? Like that, that big, holy shit, I didn't know that. Wow. Everything that's badass that you've heard and you don't know who did it, I bet you it's Rob. That's just how it <laughs> is, dude. Uh, <laughs> and then there's like a, a song on that record that I was like, this is really real um, Velvet Underground influenced this riff right here. So this Velvet Underground thing. He's like, let's go get the Velvet Underground amp. I'm like, oh, that's cool. You got the same model. He's like, no, it's the one they recorded on. I took it from the studio. Dude, no way. And let's go, dude. It's like, his life is just crazy. He's like so deeply ingrained in rock and roll and rock history. That, not to say it's meaningless, because I know he really loves what he does, but it's just another day, you know? And so it's easy to come in and for somebody to come in the room and you just assume that you're another person in their day. Right, right, right. No, I get it. I get it. Uh, before we wrap up, let's talk about Brand New Soul. So when when, uh, when did you guys actually record this? Have you been sitting on it for a while? Like how how uh, how long was this process for getting this record out? Yeah, Brand New Soul is like kind of started off with some demos I had from the last couple of years, which I think is kind of cool that it's, it's a little bit of a span of different things that I've I've been working on and then taking it to the team and really running with the fact that it's a new team and letting the record be what it would be with them you know like I think everybody playing in the band is really interesting and unique in the way that they play and what they have to offer and like kind of giving everybody enough space to do that yeah I was gonna ask like I, I know you come up with with like the chunk of the song but like um, with it being such a collective of different musicians throughout all these years with this lineup, like, was it, was everybody contributing equally or was it like everybody just kind of throwing in their flavor with, with the stuff that you brought in? Um, I'd say there are songs where people had more like structural input and like, like adding riffs or like, I think everybody had some of that, you know? Mm -hmm. And then especially in the studio, it's like, it's the the one record in my life that I've played the least on crazy because every record i've ever done i play i play something like i've played guitar on on something on every trapped under ice record you know and every angel dust record has been predominantly me playing guitar or bass um or stringed instruments obviously you know like pat did too but right and with this it was like you guys just do it like do yeah. it there's certain things that were my way that they're maybe they just doing it their way long enough that they didn't they couldn't do it my way if they tried. They got their way and they did it their way. And it feels cool and real. Um, you guys announced like a ton of touring with the album drop, right? So you guys, it's like you guys have a US tour. You guys have Europe. What is that it? Is it just those two? Uh, Australia, Japan. Aust yeah. So you have a lot ahead of you, right? It's going to be book well. Yeah. Is it all one into another or do you at least have breaks between um, it's like one of those tours where it's like there's like three days to break between flights. Oh my god! Two days to fly and one day to take an actual break in a hotel room somewhere. You know? So yeah. It's essentially three months straight. Oh my god! When was the last time you went this hard 
in a row. It's probably been a long time, right? It's been a long time. It's like the people that were playing in Angel Dust that, you know, were shared with Turnstile. It's like they had Turnstile all the time. And when they didn't, it's like they could, you know, I really appreciate those guys gave me a lot of their energy in a time when it's like, I don't know how I, I couldn't, I couldn't live a year in, in Daniel Fang's shoes, you know? Right. Uh, but to have a team that is more available and really, really hungry, you know, that's the thing that, that you really need for a band to succeed. You need hunger. You know, it's like, um, it's hard to be hungry if you're in the biggest band in the world and you got a couple weeks off to go toward angel dust, you know, it's like, again, those, those dudes gave me everything. It was awesome. It was, it was an awesome time, but with the team now, it's like they live and breathe this. And that's kind of a part of like the concept of brand new soul. You know, it's like, it's like a brand new energy. It's like, um, just more authentic than ever. And, and, um, I know people love this thing. People love angel dust. And it's like for the first time ever, really, I have a team of people who are like as committed as me to like giving it to everybody. So like playing Southeast Asia, I think is like a testament to that. It's like, like, as long as I'm making music, there's been people from Southeast Asia who like really want, they love this shit just the way that we do. You know, they have that, that same energy. Yeah. Oh man. Well, I'm excited for you and I'm excited to finally hear this whole record. Uh, it's always such a joy hanging out with you. Let me hit you with the last question, which is when was the first time you felt like you were doing the thing you've been working so hard towards? Dude. I love this question because I've just been, I was just thinking so much about this sound and fury just happened and that festival and Los Angeles is like so important to me, you know, just defines me in a lot of ways for a lot of reasons. But one of them being, um, sound and fury 2008 was like the moment where I was like, people really like and care about what we're doing. And, um, like these things about me that the world doesn't appreciate our world does appreciate you know i remember it was a thing um touring with trash talk where like they 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 met us out on the east coast and we're touring to the west coast and they were telling us every day they were like hey man we get to the west coast it's gonna be a little different these kids they do side to side they jump off the stage they don't do that spin kicking shit nobody here spin kicking nobody's into all the ignorant shit and they even told us they were like people might not like y'all at all on the west coast and I think you remember that time. It was like, just not our world. It was like a different thing, you know, at least from what I was told, what I've always understood of the West coast. And then we came and played, um, San, San Diego was the first show at the Che Cafe. And I think the next show was the show you were talking about, mm-hmm. but yeah, it was like people, people rec- received us well. It was cool. And then we came back, I think it was like six months later for sound of fury. And I remember thinking that we weren't going to be accepted and then we were accepted. We had good shows. Sound of Fury 2000, of Fury 2008 was uh, just like a sea of spin kicking people who were like, we get it. We're down. We're, we're signed up, you know, really solidified the idea that I'm allowed to be myself and it can mean something to other people. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. I love that. Thanks for, dude, you're the best. Thank you so much for hanging out with me today, man. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I love you. Love you too.
And that is our show. Thank you so much to Justice for coming on. Thank you for listening. And thank you to my editor, Ryan Rainbow, for making this sound so excellent. Uh, there's a bonus episode available right now. If you head on over to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon, where Justice answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. You can access that, submit questions to upcoming guests and all sorts of fun stuff by heading over to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon. Also, real quick, uh, I hope I don't shoot myself in the foot saying this. I believe today I'm the guest on this week's episode of 60 Songs That Explain the 90s, which is my all-time favorite podcast. I'm talking about Fugazi with Rob Harvilla. If you enjoy that show, you should go back and listen to when I interviewed Rob Harvilla on this show. All right, that's it. Take care. Bye-bye.